Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas. Tonight, the second program in our repeat series, Literacy, The Medium and the Message, is on the history of reading. Reading gradually becomes a metaphor for thinking. As culture becomes more readerly, we find an interpenetration of thinking about thinking and thinking about reading. The same metaphors, the same conceptualizations. And I find this fascinating because I think this is the birth of a new type of self-consciousness. Reading changes its character with time. If I were to show you a manuscript from the 10th century, you probably wouldn't be able to make head or tail of it. There would be no spaces between words, no titles, no capitals, no punctuation, no index or table of contents, just a solid wall of letters. If you tried to read it, you'd find yourself unable to just skim over the letters, extracting the meaning, as modern readers do. You'd have to laboriously piece out the text. So laboriously, in fact, that one historian of reading says that doctors in ancient times used to recommend reading to their patients as a form of exercise. The modern book, with its many conveniences for the reader, began to take shape only in the 12th century. From then on, the number of books and the number of readers steadily increased. The invention of the printing press in the 15th century accelerated the process. And reading, an ability once possessed only by monks, is now considered an essential tool for survival. Reading has a history. And tonight, in the second program in our series on orality and literacy, we're going to explore the early stages of that history. What effect did the growth of literacy have on thinking and on social organization? What did we gain and what do we lose by becoming readers? The series was recorded at a conference on orality and literacy held last June at the University of Toronto. It was jointly organized by the McLuhan Program and the Toronto Semiotic Circle, and it brought together many of the most noted scholars in the field. David Cayley covered the conference for ideas and interviewed the participants. Tonight's program is based on those conversations. The tools that we use are never just tools. They're always metaphors as well. They show us what we're like and what the world is like. Today we're surrounded by the metaphorical resonance of the computer. We describe ourselves as systems, our speech as communication, and our behavior as programming. But for most of the history of our civilization, the commanding metaphor was the book. The theologians of the 12th century spoke of God as the writer of the book of nature. The scientists of the 17th century saw themselves as its readers. By the 18th century, politics was beginning to be decisively shaped by writing. Alexis de Tocqueville described the French Revolution as essentially a product of writing. The writers, he says, furnished not merely their ideas to the people, but also their temperament and disposition. All Frenchmen, from reading their books, finally contracted the instincts, the turn of mind, the tastes, and even the eccentricities natural to those who write. And when they finally had to act, de Tocqueville goes on, they transported into politics all the habits of literature, the same attraction for general theories, the same contempt for existing facts, the same desire to rebuild the entire constitution according to the rules of logic. Writing and reading 
became models of how to understand the world and how to act in it. Our notions of privacy, of individuality, of the importance of controlling ourselves and nature all bear the mark of literacy. Literacy is so much a part of our society now that it seems natural and inevitable. It's become an invisible environment, one we tend to take for granted. But Western society wasn't always literate, and the story about how it became literate can tell us a lot about what literacy is and what it does to us. It can make the invisible environment visible. The first people in Europe to consider reading a centrally important activity were Benedictine monks. Reading to them was an ascetic activity, an integral part of the religious life, and they read very differently than we do. Reading during the period, let me say, from 500, 400, all the way up to the middle of the 12th century, was most of the time a prayerful activity. This is Ivan Illich, social critic, historian of the Middle Ages, and the co-author with Barry Sanders of a new book called ABC, The Alphabetization of the Western Mind. As in ideal type, I can say monkish reading, Lectio Divina, was the main activity, which meant speaking to yourself, perceiving what is in the book because your mouth articulates it so that you can hear it. And very frequently, at least in the liturgy, you can incorporate it through gesture. It is still somewhat rooted in the old Semitic reading where you read weaving in order to incorporate, actually, embody the memories. The memories are not visual, but the memories which remain of me uh, reading are in your tongue, in the vibration of your ears, mm -hmm. in what your body feels. And the book was written accordingly. The type of reading which Ivan Illich describes was an intensely physical activity. Early medieval manuscripts followed the Greek and Roman practice of writing in continuous letters with no breaks between words. Decoding this script was strenuous work. It required the reader to rely a good deal on his memory and to sound out the words as they were read. Contemporary readers, when confronted with this unseparated script in experimental situations, find it necessary to do the same thing. And there's also the example of the Vi people of West Africa, who still use a script of this same type. Paul Sanger works on medieval manuscripts at Chicago's Newberry Library. The Vi people in Liberia and Western Africa, through their early contact with the, uh, the Portuguese in the 16th century, gleaned the idea of writing and developed a syllabary script, apparently indigenous, which has no spaces between words, no punctuation, no equivalent to our capitalization at the beginning of sentences. Therefore, it's a highly ambiguous kind of transcription. And in order to reconstruct this into intelligible language, they mumble and, uh, when they read. And this was the way in which the church fathers read. You find references to this by Jerome. and It's the normal way of reading. And the only notable exception to that is St. Ambrose whom St. Augustine describes in his um, confessions, his 
amazement that St. Ambrose does not pronounce aloud. He had this peculiar habit of, of reading silently. An exceptional practice. Right. We don't, it would be nice to talk to Ambrose <laughs> and ask him why, but I think the important thing is that Augustine thought it was remarkable and that numerous other, whole corpus of other citations in the Church Fathers, uh, both Greek and, and Roman, uh, suggest this oralization process being a normal part of reading, the buzzing of, uh, of the private reader. The difficulties of reading unseparated script were compounded in places like England and Ireland, where Latin was an unfamiliar language. And it was on these fringes of civilization that manuscripts with spaces between the words were first produced. People tend to change their writing as little as possible in order to function. And the important thing that uh, why, I mean, the full cause for this word separation beginning in England and Ireland is that and in Ireland specifically, was outside of the Roman Empire. And for them, Latin was a, a foreign language, which in no way related to their own vernacular. I mean, it had no correspondence, and they needed an artificial way of learning it, and an artificial way of reading it. And it being difficult, they developed a, a series of innovations, uh, which would be almost impossible to discuss in, in radio, where you can't show slides and show what they are, of which the most dramatic, however, was the separation of words. The most remarkable thing about this innovation was that it took the better part of four centuries to catch on in continental Europe. The works of Bede, for example, were written in separated script in England in the 8th century, but when they reached the continent, they were copied without word breaks. It seems astonishing that people would have refused so obvious an improvement, but habit and tradition are hard to change. And it may also be that the monks saw no advantage in making reading easier or faster. Speed was not an issue in monkish reading. The point was to taste the words on your tongue. Let the reader seek for savor, not science, says a Cistercian monk of the time. So it was not until the 12th century that something like our modern book first came into existence. Between the beginning and the end of that century, the appearance of the book was transformed, and in the process, it became an entirely new kind of technical tool. Words were now separated throughout Europe, allowing for silent and therefore private reading. Chapters got titles and subtitles, quotations were marked, paragraphs, marginal glosses, tables of contents, and alphabetical indices were all added. Books could now be consulted and used for reference as well as reading. Libraries with books set out on shelves came into existence, and monasteries began to catalogue their holdings. Ivan Illich thinks that these changes, taken together, amounted to a revolution. The sensibilities of somebody born in 1100 were shocked by somebody recommending to them to use an alphabetic index. Well, Albert the Great, a little bit later, in the early 13th century, makes a long and embarrassed excuse when, in a book on beasts, in a, best, in a bestiary, zoology of that time, he arranges animals in alphabetic order. He says quite clearly that this is an anti-intellectual proceeding, procedure, but it has its usefulness, you see? He was as embarrassed by using the new technical tool 
which still was called book, but was something else. As I am embarrassed when, because I don't have a secretary in a given moment, I sit down at a text composer. Why was it embarrassing for him? Very simply, because it was absurd to put words which realistically are meant still to glue to the things which they represent into an order which has nothing to do with those things. Let me give you an example. If I asked your child, do you have a son or a daughter? I have four. Well, one of them. <laughs> I would take that little boy and say to him, look here, in order to learn and to make it easier for you to know something about time, you have to learn the months of the year in alphabetic order. <laughs> April, February, <laughs> etc. You would tell me, Edith, you are crazy. Months by their nature come in the order January, February, March, and not in alphabetic order. We all have it in our blood that it's this way. And anyway, what does it mean? In the very same way, Albert the Great says, animals come according in the order by which they represent, they are the symbols, the created symbols of certain virtues. The panther of sweetness and the lion of courage. And we should be ordered according to the virtues they present, not according to the first letter with which they begin. Why should you do this? I can't understand it. By the end of that century, such ordering, today we would speak random arrangement, had already become possible. The 12th century book was more than just a new tool for the production of knowledge. It was also a new kind of metaphor, a new way to define the social and psychological space in which people lived. Ivan Illich calls this new space literate mind, or lay literacy, and he argues that it engulfed even those who couldn't read. Let me illustrate that, if that's all right with you, mm -hmm. with what happened during the late 12th and the beginning of the 13th century. The number of people in society who knew how to hold a writing instrument increased, but not very fast. The people who could decipher a sentence increased little. But the number of people who knew that by doing something bad, an entry was made in the book of life, and that by the end of their life they would have to face the supreme judge who would read out of a book telling them what they had done. The number of people who, by 1215, could be obligated by the church to go yearly to confession, reading their conscience and manifesting to the priest what was written in their inside, their so-called conscience, increased tremendously. The Inquisition started. Torture, opening of the body and of the soul by force in order to allow the judge to read what is truly at the bottom of this man's heart, as distinct from what he says. 
under oath, perhaps, became possible afterward. Now, I'm interested how are alphabetic assumptions, assumptions, concepts which are based on rating techniques, made into the axioms by which simple people, non-writing people, who in the Middle Ages are called lay people, perceive the world, socially construct their own reality. What are the generators, the new generators of the topology within which they live? And there, in the late 12th century, I've begun to study a variety of aspects of iconography in sculpture, in painting, in miniatures. And I see that no peasant can go into the church anymore, starting the middle of the 12th century, without passing through the church door above which there is an tympanon, you know, the ark, with the Lord in the last judgment sitting there with the book of life opened in front of him. The devil changes appearance there's a lovely story on the writing devil, acquires tablet and uh, writing tool, sits on his tail, which becomes thicker for that purpose, so that it can be used as a stool, and notes down people's sins. People learn that they can commit a sin not only by doing something and saying something, but also an entirely new capacity by not saying something, but thinking something. And I look at literature at the beginning of the 12th century, people still, when they don't say something and yet really say it, they mumble to themselves. By the 13th century, they already are thinkers, you know. Simple people learn to think, that is, to read on their own inside something which is written there without their being able to read and write. These are the things which interest me in the 12th century. Ivan Illich thinks that these changes in the popular mind actually began as changes in the physical layout of the book. And these changes in the physical book also supported a new type of reading, silent, personal, and private. This in turn dramatically enhanced the possibilities for individual thought and expression Marshall McLuhan called print the technology of individualism, and it began with the portable and accessible manuscript book that now began to appear, Paul Sanger. In the medieval university, you could bring books to class and read contrary opinions. It was not, there was a possibility of questioning, of internal questioning, which was facilitated by this new medium, which was so much more easy to control. A second was a, a dimension of personal piety. In antiquity, prayer was allowed. Silent prayer was as much an exception as silent reading. Prayer was an oral activity. St. Augustine talks about this as an oral activity. He explains, he goes into a contract that we don't have to do it for God because God would know, of course, what we said, but we do it for ourselves. And it is this tradition which stems in pagan antiquity, and uh, continues through the early Middle Ages of oral prayer, which is uh, fractured radically by uh, the new private kind of reading. And we find 
as uh, especially in the parts of Europe where the vernacular was dissimilar to Latin, books of great diversity which were brought into church and which people read while they were listening to the Mass. And so instead of the one Mass which everybody understood as they existed at the end of Roman antiquity because they understood Latin, one had a whole variety of personal religious experiences which were taking place during a public oral act which was no longer comprehended except in, a, in the way it was explained in these vernacular books which were particularly intended for silent perusal during the oral celebration of the Mass. This is the roots of the kind of personal religion which becomes so apparent in the Reformation. And the third, and, and that's most, uh, I think, uh, related to this is and it has a great deal of relevance today, is the development of, of the forbidden, the fascination with the erotic. The book as a stimulant, in a way which has become, of course, a problem in modern society, but which one sees in, especially in the end of the Middle Ages, in certain books, peculiar, strangely, in, in books of devotion, in which the vices are so, especially graphically, so described as to be the type that one would contemplate in a small book and were obviously intended to titulate the ma imagination of the, of the person contemplating and regarding the book in a private uh, dimension and in certain texts of this uh, type which grew and which is also a result of this privacy. The germ of pornography was born at the end of the Middle Ages in this private, individual, solitary activity of reading. As Europe gradually became a literate society, the world became a text to be read and interpreted. Writers of the 11th and 12th centuries spoke for the first time of the book of nature. St. Anselm called God a grammarian and thought of creation as obeying grammatical rules. An entirely new concept of nature was appearing. The term nature, natura, comes from the Latin word to be born. Uh, nascor. And in the ancient world, the commonest understanding of natura was something born or the essence of something. Our concept of nature is that of a set of laws, of a, of a realm of n physically law-bound activity. You know, I mean, nature or the natural universe runs according to law, we say. And that notion of nature, nature as a self-sustaining set of laws in the world is an invention of the 12th century. Brian Stock is a fellow of the Pontifical Institute for Medieval Studies at the University of Toronto. He sees this new idea of nature as just one of many changes taking place in the intellectual landscape of Europe during the 11th and 12th centuries, a period he studied in a book called Implications of Literacy. Many of these changes are related to a new type of reading a type of reading which eventually flowers as scholastic philosophy. 
its purpose was very different from that of the monk who read for savor, not science. The purpose of monastic reading was personal, was a personal spiritual growth and development uh, that you would read, meditate, pray, and contemplate. These were the four divisions, generally, of a monastic reading in order to fulfill ascetic ideals, really. Uh, it's almost as if today, I suppose, we went off with a book of poetry, and we, instead of writing an essay about it, we just sat down and meditated about it, and thought about it, and thought deeply about it, and when, even when we put the book down, we continued to recite the words, and to think about them, and that they would inform our, our being, so to speak, you know? They, they would be inside us, they would be living inside us in this way, in the ideal monk was this sort of person. The scholastic had a different view, and it's a much more modern view. Uh, his idea was that knowledge was cumulative, and that the purpose of study was to accumulate knowledge, facts, so that what you should really do in reading scriptures in the Bible was to codify, to codify theological and other ideas so that you could sort them out talk about them logically in all sorts of ways, and accumulate knowledge. And, uh, and of course, the scholastic was to win out. I mean, in a way, in terms of the production of scientific knowledge, the scholastic approach was the future. And, and, and the church, being the most advanced institution intellectually of its time, saw this and, in fact, became the early sponsor of scholastic learning. Europe in the 11th century was still a predominantly oral society. But as reading changed its character and the number of readers increased, European society began to be preoccupied with the problem characteristic of written language, the problem of interpretation, of meaning. Spoken language at that time always occurred as part of a face-to-face -face physical encounter, and this human context helped to define its meaning. Written language has no context. It must provide its own, and this is part of the reason why the medieval page is often so richly decorated. Written language places speech at a distance from us, and this raises new questions about what language actually is and what words really mean. Do words point to ultimate realities, or are they themselves the ultimate reality? This was the kind of question which began to preoccupy scholastic philosophy. In the implications of literacy, Brian Stock has examined a whole series of these new problems of interpretation. One of the first concerned the meaning of the Eucharist, the communion meal of bread and wine which lies at the heart of the Mass. The question, in its most naive form, was whether the bread and wine were really the body and blood of Christ, and it was debated between two ninth-century theologians called Redbertus and Retramnus. Retramnus of Corby. I think having newly read Augustine and possibly some other grammarians, proposed that what happens in the Eucharist is not a physical change, or perhaps not only a physical change, and certainly not a historical change. It's basically a conceptual change in our minds. <laughs> it's something that happens through language and interpretation, to put it simply. and. Uh, this, so it seems like a quite innocent thought to us, and perhaps even obvious, struck some figures in this period uh, as being uh, very dangerous. And one of the spokesmen for the other side was a very eminent ninth-century theologian 
who said that no, in fact, uh, every time the Eucharistic ceremony or sacrament is enacted, it's a real enactment. It's a real enactment. It's, it's, it's physical. It's historical. And so the controversy began there. Now, in the 11th century, when people became much more consciously literate, when cathedral schools were beginning, when we find a whole network of support system for literate culture, it was, it was inevitable that this issue should be raised again. But it wasn't raised in the same terms, in quite the same terms as it was in the ninth century. And what I tried to argue was that the two positions on this controversy, which I presented in their ninth century terms, become positions of interpretation. That the position which argues that the appearance of the bread and the wine is historical and physical and is a real change in some sense is a subject of interpretation and that the other position which was most forcefully argued by Berengar of Tours, a very famous heretic uh, and an aristocrat of early logical thinking in fact, is also an interpretive position. So that we have a transformation of what in fact um, could be, could have been thought of in anthropological terms as a ritual into something which in a reading culture and a writing culture becomes a subject of interpretation. The existence of texts creates the problem of interpretation. Spoken words have a context, a voice, a look, a situation. Written words have none. The reader must reconstruct their meaning on the evidence of the text alone. The result, says David Olson, is that a distinction comes to be made between a text and its interpretations, between what the writer says and what he means a distinction which he thinks is peculiar to literate societies. David Olson is the co-director of the McLuhan program at the University of Toronto and was the main organizer of the Literacy and Orality Conference on which this program is based. He thinks that this distinction between a text and its interpretations eventually leads to the idea of objectivity, the idea that we can separate facts from our thoughts and feelings about those facts. And he thinks that this distinction is fundamental for both the Protestant Reformation and the Scientific Revolution. In the Reformation, in the Counter-Reformation, there was an, a new and different understanding of the relationship between a text and its interpretation. As is well known, Protestantism was built on the notion that a text simply means what it says and that any other interpretations were fanciful, dreams of the imagination, was how Francis Bacon characterized it. And Luther called any interpretations tradition and dogma. And he said that what a text means is what it says, and all the rest is mischief. Well, that distinction it certainly didn't originate with 
Luther, and it wasn't exclusive to Protestantism, of course. It presumably grew out of a rabbinical tradition, and it spread through the Catholic world just as quickly as it spread through the Protestant world almost, or pretty well. But the distinction came to be seen as justifiable. You could actually distinguish what the text actually said from its interpretations. And the interpretations came to be seen as accretions, as additions, as fanciful constructions, mental things. Well, when that was, when text came to be seen that way, and I'm not saying that they saw it correctly, I'm just saying that they came to see it that way, they also realized or came to believe that the world could be treated that way. There were some things about the world which really could be observed because they were in the world, just in the same way that Luther said there are some things that you can find in Scripture because it's really in the text. Well, and so for Francis Bacon, but not only for Bacon, for the whole host of 17th century scientists, Robert Boyle, Robert Hooke, the charge that they felt that they had was to find out the facts about nature, which could be derived from diligent observation. This is an expression of William Harvey's, who discovered circulation of the blood. He said that all that's required for our science is diligent observation. And Francis Bacon said, all that we need is the statement of observed facts. Look at nature as if it's a text, find out what's really written there, and exclude all this stuff that, that had been tied in with science in the past, which he now started to see or take to be mere interpretation. So the difference between astronomy and astrology, for example, was that the astronomers wanted the observed facts cut off from their interpretations, the interpretations being how the, the conjunction of the planets might make you happy or depressed or whatever. And the same between chemistry and alchemy. The distinction came to be made between the observed facts in those sciences and the interpretations of those facts. So there was the, the, the same distinctions which had been made in regard to text, namely the difference between what's given and what's interpreted came to be applied to nature. Find out what's given, given to observation, and distinguish that from the dreams of the imagination. The idea that texts had a plain, objective meaning also led to changes in the way they were written. Explicitness became an ideal, and the modern prose essay was born. Luther was probably wrong in thinking that scripture was autonomous, and because it's just a collection of oral tradition, there's a vast interpretive tradition lying around about it. But the interesting thing was, if you believe that they're self-interpreting, or should be self-interpreting, you can invent a form of prose which is as close to self-interpreting as you can make it, which is to say it starts to be tied into the tradition rather than to be tied into the background knowledge of the reader. So that it's the case that books, if they're written now, all academic books, but even popular books, are written to indicate their place in the literature, as we say, not their place in the relationship between the uh, author and reader. But the implication of this in the 17th century was that when they believed the text should be self-interpreting, they started to write texts which were quite close to self-interpreting, and they adopted as the Royal Society of London in 1666 uh, in their charter claimed they adopted a mathematical plainness of style. They just said what they meant. They, they said that they weren't in, their re, in the minutes of their meetings, there was to be no amplifications or digressions or fanciful expressions. They were simply to tell the truth and tell it in a, 
of factual, direct way so that anyone reading it would come up with the same meaning or the same interpretation. Although uh, they, by interpretation there, they didn't mean fanciful interpretation. They meant just getting the meaning out of it. And I think that that's really the decisive factor in contemporary prose, that namely there is still an attempt, and we judge writers to be successful or failures on the basis of their ability to achieve something resembling an autonomous text, something which could be picked up by a reader. If he didn't have the background knowledge, it would tell him where the background was. So the modern book might say, this follows the argument of McLuhan, or I'm building now on the arguments of McLuhan, and if you don't know what they are, there's a book mentioned, you can go read that book. Right. Now, the, these, they never become completely autonomous, of course. Mm -hmm. But our textual tradition is very much in the tradition of the 17th century, namely make texts and write them in such a way that they don't depend on any private experience or on any uh, mystical interpretations. They can just be read. And if you, if you know the language and if you know the backgrounds that are stated there, you'll come up with the same meaning or interpretation that the author had. Writing creates a new kind of reality and raises vexing questions about the status of that reality. Today we take it for granted that authors will create fictional characters and that we'll laugh and cry over them as though they were perfectly real. In the Middle Ages it was not so. The first writer in English to call himself an author was Geoffrey Chaucer, who lived in the second half of the 14th century. Before he wrote, poetry was oral, and the poets were bards, or scops, who stitched together tales and legends which belonged to the whole culture. Chaucer made the Canterbury Tales up, and in doing so, he challenged the very idea of what an author was. He has to take on God, and the reason he has to do that is that there is only one author in the Middle Ages. Barry Sanders is the co-writer with Ivan Illich of ABC, The Alphabetization of the Western Mind. Their book includes an account of how Chaucer became an author. Only God has done all of that creation. I mean, he's got, he already made, he already did his fiction. And that was Adam, you know, with his finger, Fingere's fiction. You know, he touches Adam with his index finger. Medieval poets disclaim the notion that they've sucked any stories from their fingers. They say that this has not been, the preface to a story will say, this has not been sucked from my finger. Yeah? But Chaucer is sucking these stories wholesale from his finger, and he's weaving them, as we say, in the modern period, out of whole cloth. Right? Told this story out of whole cloth. He's making up the texture himself. And so Chaucer, in a sense, has created. Well, that's kind of, as far as I know, divine usurpation. Sanders thinks that Chaucer gets around this by playing with the situation. He's funny, and his humor makes his fiction transparent. But Chaucer has another problem as well. 
the expectations of his listeners. The oral poetry they were used to involved the retelling of tales, which varied with each telling. The bards who sang these tales were not their authors. They were conservers, not creators of culture, and they were the servants, not the source of popular taste. Chaucer was a completely new kind of poet, an author who was producing a written text and who intended to please himself, not his listeners. He shows this by the way that he starts the Canterbury Tales. The first sentence of the poem lasts twelve lines and begins with two interminable subordinate clauses. You have to wait until the twelfth line to find out what the sentence is about, a construction almost impossible to grasp with the ear. So what he does is to not just give to an, a listening audience the most, one of the most complicated, difficult sorts of grammatical constructions possible, he gives those people two in a row. First one from lines one through five, and the next from lines six through eleven. And so by the time they get to the twelfth line of the Canterbury Tales, which is the independent clause, then long and folk to go on pilgrimages, they've certainly retained only a vague sense of what went on before or re forgotten all of it. Hmm? So this is a person who is this author who is standing there reciting this poem and being nasty to them. I mean, it, was, it would be as if I were on the radio right now and delivering all of this in the most complicated, highfalutin sentences I can imagine with complicated grammar and riddled with jargon. Right? It'd be lots of, maybe there already is, um, <laughs> turning of the dial to find someone else to listen to. So you have to ask, why is Chaucer doing that? Why is he being so nasty? And not only that, but he delivers it in a different metrical form that they've ever seen before, um, with a different beat than they've ever seen before. And what he does is to really separate himself out as the fact from the rest of these people that he is not giving them a quasi-improvised poem. All that he's doing is reading a text out loud. What he's suggesting to them, if they really want to understand this thing that he's giving them, is that they've got to learn to read. So Chaucer's audience has to become literate if they want to, if they want to get this poem, because at this point the poem gets them. It's hostile. Fifty years after Chaucer's death, in the German city of Mainz, Johannes Gutenberg printed a Bible with his new invention, movable types. His printing press considerably amplified the power and the reach of printed texts. Processes of change that had been underway for several centuries were speeded up. The number of books and the number of readers increased dramatically. Derek de Kirchhoff, is the co-director with David Olson of the McLuhan program at the University of Toronto. He worked with Marshall McLuhan before McLuhan's death in 1980, and he has continued to refine and develop ideas first put forward 25 years ago in the Gutenberg galaxy. 
He thinks, for example, that the appearance of perspective in Renaissance painting is a visual bias related directly to the experience of reading print. Why does perspective appear both in theory and practice after the Renaissance or around the Renaissance? Why is it that the medieval mosaic maker or painter represent things juxtaposed with no sense of basic proportionality? Why is it that somebody on the top of a tower in a medieval illumination looks as big as somebody at the foot of the tower? Why is it that the back of the town represented with all its wall it could be just as well at the front as it is in the back? There is no sense of diminishing size and perspective. There is no sense of relationship between that object and that object in the total field of space. Maybe because he couldn't paint, but that's not a very good explanation. More likely, he couldn't care less. And more likely, because the symbolic value of the, of the elements of representation was given a dimension, a physical dimension. Christ on the judgment, last judgment images that you find on the timpani of the entrances of cathedrals and uh, even not just cathedrals, the old Roman churches as well, is big, is large. He's the largest figure of all. And around are slightly, quite a bit smaller saints and then evil people who are tiny very often. They are not placed in relation to each other, they are placed in relation to the symbolic value of their merit or their inner, you know, context. In the Renaissance, this ceases to be the code. The code becomes people are either closer or further from the viewer, from the person who is looking at the, the sculpture or looking at the painting. That is the analysis of space in sequence and proportionality. Proportion. The proportion of things in relation to each other becomes the principle by which a society is organized. It's a completely different ground from anything the world had known until then. I attribute this appearance of proportionality in the context of the given of reality as a consequence of training one's brain by reading and writing our alphabet to use sequential analysis as the prime organizer of information. Derek de Kirchhoff thinks that this homogeneous visual space of Renaissance painting is an analog of how we process print by analyzing linear sequences of letters. Reading reduces sensory experience to a single visual dimension. So when reading begins to dominate our experience of the world, we literally take leave of our senses. A lot of our information processing, a lot of our understanding of reality went to our head and stayed there. And we suddenly looked down on all this saying, what's this here for kind of thing? <laughs> well, of course we need it. And you have, you have all kinds of philosophical treaties in the 16th and 17th century of how to handle your body. The passions, it was called the passions. And you have a heavy, hefty literature on the passions, not just from the church, but from your regular philosophers in England, in France, in Italy, in Spain, all of Western Europe, starting really right after the Renaissance, right around the Renaissance. This was the major problem. In other words, once speech had ceased to be understood as something happening between people and as something that was involving all of life, all the, con all the oral context, and began to be manipulated in the privacy of one's little cabinet when one was writing and reading, such as Montaigne in his favorite librairie, oh, la librairie de Montaigne, ma librairie. 
this isolation, then the whole question of the physical manifestation of human communication became problematic. You had to find a way by which you could abstract yourself from human communication. Abstract yourself. You had to retire to become a thinker. You had to retire from human discourse. This was a real problem. How to interiorize one's experience and become a consciousness. Typographical man, as McLuhan dubbed him, lives in his head. And to de Kirchhoff, this means that he lives vicariously. Readers recreate their own lives as literature. When you begin to read, and particularly read novels, you begin to see life as conceptual visual representation of built images, images that you build from yourself, over which you have control, but which didn't really happen and didn't need to really happen for them to have full coherence in your mind. What's absolutely fascinating about the history of novels, what's fascinating about the history of interiority, the interiorization of consciousness, is it's fictional. It is fiction. Fiction is, is the word that we call our books with, but fiction is the way we organize our internal mental processes and take control over them. We fictionalize reality to take power over it. We fictionalize ourselves into, into experiences that we didn't really have, but experiences that represent what we might have had or what could stand in lieu of what we really had. We remember, as an author tells us, of what it's like for the Princesse de Clèves to be in love, or Phèdre by Racine, or our theatrical heroes, La Rochefoucauld said many people would not ever fall in love if they had not read or heard about what it's like to fall in love. It's simply that we learn, we begin to learn and accumulate incredible amounts of experience by vicarious experiences which all are interiorized, mentalized, and inner control. A reader became an interiorizer of experience. Mm -hmm. And all the sensory references that had to be experienced in life with the body before reading in an oral context became borrowed from memory in a reading context. It is always the memory of experiences of senses that stood in lieu of those experiences themselves. No wonder the body is in, stands in the way. Once the head is separated from the body, as it happens after the Renaissance, the mind says, I want it my way, I want it in my own fantasies, and I don't want to have a body standing in the way of my, my own organization of reality. So that the struggle, the tug of war between mind and body, which took religious forms even in the 17th century, was the major tension between an external externality of the human live speech and the interiority of the silent reading process. It's not remarkable in itself that we should model our love affairs after the Princesse de Clèves. All cultures tell stories which shape the lives of their members. But de Kirchhoff, I think, is saying something more. He's saying that we build our lives out of fragments of literature, as though they were Lego bricks. And it is the resulting abstract mental structures which he thinks are the hallmark of literacy. Derek de Kirchhoff emphasizes the physical aspect of reading, the way in which we actually process strings of letters, and the effect he thinks this has on our sensory experience. Other people you have heard tonight lay more stress on the book as metaphor, or on the way in which a literate culture's cognitive style becomes, as Brian Stock says, more readerly. But all of the scholars interviewed for tonight's program agree that in some way, literacy transformed the European mind. Looking at literacy historically enables us to see it in perspective. 
it gives us a glimpse of a time before writing and helps us to locate literacy in the context of other ways of understanding the world. This perspective is something I think we need when we try to assess the role of literacy today. Literacy today will be my subject in the final program of this series next week at this time. I'll talk about the book in the era of the computer, about the need for a proper balance between written and spoken forms of the language, and about why the worship of texts may be destroying literacy, not preserving it. Please join me then. Tonight's program was prepared and presented by David Cayley. Technical operations, Ken Barnes and Lauren Tulk. Production assistance by Laurie Clayton and Gail Brownell. The show was produced by Sarah Walsh and Alison Moss. We've prepared a transcript of this three-part series. It costs $7, and you can get a copy by writing to CBC Enterprises, Literacy, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. Enclose a cheque or money order for $7, and please be prepared to wait eight weeks for delivery. We've also prepared a reading list for the series, and it's free. Write to us at Ideas, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night. Thank you.